Welcome to Sewer Mutant, the podcast that takes you way underground to excavate comics you won't find anywhere else. You've probably heard of The Crow, James O'Barr's tale of revenge that became a film, TV show, and pop culture phenomena. But O'Barr did a few lesser-known works that I've been obsessed with for years. For this episode, I'm joined by John Eckleberry, a longtime James O'Barr fan behind the site Shattered in the Head, and more recently, the James O'Barr Collector site. So we'll be talking about James O'Barr's work, but... Uh, first, I want to thank Crudler for letting us use his music on the show. Please check out his link uh, to Bandcamp on in the show notes. And now, without further ado, welcome to the show, John. Awesome to be here. Always happy to talk about uh, my obsessions, this being one of them. Cool. Yeah. So um, I figured we could probably just start by by just talking about how we we both got into James O'Barr. Yeah, I, um, like so many other people, came to it through the film. Um I was just a little bit too young to have uh, caught the film in theaters. I wish I would have, but um, uh, a friend that was a couple years older than me uh, showed it to me uh, on VHS, uh, probably like 1995, and um, it just stuck with me. It was it was the right time. I would have been 14 years old at that time, and uh, that was just a work that really stuck with me, and uh, I learned that it was based on a comic. I was already into comics, but not really underground stuff. I was into, you know, X-Men and that kind of thing. And um, found out about, you know, underground comics through that, Kitchen Sink Press, a mail ordered a copy of the graphic novel from them. And, uh, you know, reading that graphic novel for the first time was really an experience that uh, it was so different than the film. You know, I love the film and I don't not to take anything away from the film, but the, the graphic novel pulled me in um, so much deeper. And uh, it, it was two completely different experiences. I feel like the book and the movie are just two different animals entirely. Uh, and that really just kind of became ground zero for, um, you know, wanting to explore the other works of James O'Barr, wanting to um, uh, see all the other Crow stuff that came later. Um, and then, you know, anything associated with the film. You know, I watched all of Brandon Lee's films. I watched all of Alex Proyas's other films afterwards. Um, got into some other underground comics, Caliber you know, kitchen sink, all of that. Cool. Yeah. I actually, uh, the first thing I read by him was frame 137 from dark horse presents. Um, I was only like 11 years old, but, um, and I had, though, I guess the first time I even saw James O'Barr stuff, it was crow related. It was in the issue 12 of wizard magazine. They had an article on Tundra. And, uh, so there was like just an image of one of the Tundra crow books and, it was just such a striking image. Uh, you know, I, you know, I still, you know, I just hadn't seen anything quite like it. And then um, I got the issue of Dark Horse Presents that has Frame 137 in it just because um, I was looking for Sin City. There's a lot of, you know, like Rob Liefeld, Jim Lee, like all those image guys were like, you know, and anytime they were interviewed, they'd say, oh, you know, Sin City is amazing. <laughs> it's like completely different from anything that Image was putting out. But, you know, I wanted to read that. And so that was the only issue of Dark Horse Presents my comic shop had. And, um, you know, that was just, you know, I'd never seen, you know, anything like it. They're like the main characters taking drugs. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, you know, there's you know, the, the rock references, the music and fashion of it. Like it's just, it's only four pages, but it's just been in my head rent free, like ever since, you know, just this amazing thing. And then, yeah, I found the film later. Um, I also didn't see it until it was on VHS. Um, 
and I don't know if it just didn't come to the theaters where I, I lived. Yeah, you know, I grew up in uh, rural Texas and Wyoming. So um, something like seeing stuff like The Crow then was, you know, it's just like mind blowing because there was just not, you know, the there weren't a lot of like goths and like rock culture around where I was, I was living. So there was a lot of, um, for me, just the subcultural elements of it were uh, just fascinating. And, you know, it just was like, this is what I've been looking for in my entire short life up to that point. And uh, yeah, so yeah, just like you, the, you know, I saw the movie, then had to go get the comic and yeah, it's just, it is so, yeah, the, the movie does a great job of capturing a lot of the elements of the comic, but it's still, they're still just incredibly different than the, like some of the depth of emotion that's in the comic that I, I really haven't seen in almost any other comic, um, which I guess is um, kind of segues into what I was just talking about. What is it about James Obar's work that really, you know, we're, I don't know how old you are, but I'm, you know, I'm 40 years old. And so I've been into this stuff since I was 11. So, you know, decades of, um, of you know, kind of obsession with this stuff. Like, what is it you think that, that is so appealing about his work? Um, I'll, I mean, to start, it's just the universal themes, right? I mean, it's, it's about love and death. I, I don't think you can get any more universal than that. Um, I'm, I'm also 40, um, you know, and so I came to this stuff when I was, when you're at the right age to be, um, you know, have a work kind of almost become part of you, right? It becomes part of your lexicon um, and how you relate to other things that you read and you see. I don't know if there's another work that's as important to me as that that film and that book. There's there's others that I love, but um, yeah, I think it's that. Uh, but beyond that, I think his work has um, kind of a truth and a, a realism to it. Um, it tells the truth in a way that great fiction does, you know, um, there's, there's humor, uh, you know, there's a, I love that the, the graphic novel reprints almost every piece of art that's featured in the books, but one of the ones that it doesn't, uh, in the inside back cover of the crow number one, the first caliber issue, um, there's a pinup and then there's the next issue blurb, right? And, uh, it says next issue, nothing is explained and things start to get violent. And uh, I always thought that that was uh, that was fun because, you know, in, in Hollywood, they have to have a reason for things, you know, like in the movie, there's a there's a reason why they're killed. There's a way that he kind of relives his memories. There's a plot device for that. You know, there was even the, the Skull Cowboy plot device that was cut out that would explain to the viewer what was going on. But uh, the book just drops you in and uh, just takes you for a ride. You know, you don't really even know until the, the fourth issue what the hell's going on, really. That's I a really interesting aspect of it is like now the crow is like such a known entity in pop culture that it's, you know, it's not confusing. We kind of know like, Oh yeah, this is a guy that, you know, whatever iteration of it, it's a guy or a woman, or a, I guess there hasn't been a non-binary crow yet, but anyway, that uh, it's a person who's come back from the dead to, to seek vengeance. Like that, that it's very clear to us now what's going on, but when those books first came out, people had no idea what to make of them. I've been looking at like old rev or like early reviews from 1989 when the comics were first coming out. And the reviewers are like, I love this. This is amazing. I don't know what this is. Like this character looks weird. Kind of looks like a vampire. One, um, like there's a, like James O'Barr has mentioned a number of times in interviews that uh, like the, for the film that uh, somebody floated the idea of Michael Jackson 
as the actor. And that was actually in a, an amazing comics review in 1989. They said he looks like, um, like he looks like a combination of Michael Jackson and the Joker or something like that. <laughs> um, so it was like, people did see, see different things in that, that character. And yeah, it's, uh, it is like hard to kind of like put oneself back in that, um, in that mindset to, to think about like, you know, picking up the crow number one or caliber presents number one and wondering like, who is this guy? What does he want? Uh, why is he killing these people? Um, yeah, it's, it was, it was all very, uh, very confusing and strange. Um, yeah. And I, th- I think for me, like for the crow in particular, it's that depth of emotion that, um, yeah, it, it's what I can come back to. You know, I, I look at it now and I can see a lot more flaws in it, the comic than I did when I was first seeing it when I was 13 or 14, uh, both in terms of you know, some of the inconsistent artwork, uh, you know, the way the writing, you know, he doesn't really face ever any real challenges or setbacks or anything like that. It's just like, just go, go, go. All, you know, he's always winning. Um, but um, you know, despite all of that, it, it's and despite all the the comics that have come out since then and just the the range of, of types of comics and and content that that that's out there now um just the way he was able to put onto paper like just the pain and the love and the longing and the the anger like all these things just um yeah there, there's I, I can't say it's the only thing that does it but uh there are few he has few peers in that regard of just really managing to, uh, yeah, just make visible uh, on the page the, you know, the, these particular emotions. It, it's interesting too. Uh, you brought up the the fact that in the book he kind of just proceeds without any roadblocks, right? But for me, that's it's kind of an important component that kind of catapults it past, you know, a death wish kind of fantasy to me because there's there's no stakes for eric he's dead already right like he's already lost his life and it's an important component to me that not only is he avenging someone else but he's also lost his own life and his own future and so when he returns um it's biblical right he's the flood like he he's not just going after the people that came after him but he just kind of um wholesale just cleans the streets right like he just comes in and wipes everyone out and and even the inconsistencies in the art are interesting to me because you really see uh james obar grow as an artist over the course of the book um you know from those early pages and then into the stuff that he's doing in the double size finale his art really grows and uh his art's continued to grow over the years um it's been a little frustrating to me that he hasn't published as much as i would like but the internet's a wonderful thing because you can see tons and tons and tons of his artwork uh, online in various places. And uh, you really see how he's um, he's kind of gone beyond comics. He's really more of a fine artist at this point, I feel like, but enjoying some of that stuff. But, you know, like I said, I'd like to see some of it published. And I would really like to see some more sequential art, you know, from when we had previously talked about uh, the fact that a huge number of his sequential pages came out in 1989. Uh, I was looking today ta- doing some tallying of pages and then the other year really is 1992 and other than those two years um you know there's not a lot there's not a lot it's it's easy to be a fan because there's not uh not that much stuff to pick up yeah and 
that was, uh, I guess, you know, transitioning over to our, you know, our, our, our own respective websites. That was a big part of what, when I started my fan site called uh, Temple to Sadness in the 90s, I probably started in 96 or 97, I can't remember. Um, there were a ton of Crow websites at that point, but there wasn't a whole lot on the internet about James O'Barr and what comics he had done. So all I knew about was Frame 137 and The Crow. I had no idea if there were others out there. This is, uh, you know, even though I was on the internet, like we think about like internet and pre-internet, but like old internet, a lot of times you would, you know, find stuff, find uh, holes in the information, I guess. And uh, so one day I went to a, a store in a comic store in Bozeman, Montana. I was uh, we're up visiting my grandma in Bozeman and. Uh, they just happened to have a whole bunch of Caliber Presents. And um, so they wanted, you know, a fortune for Caliber Presents number one, but they had number two and it was obviously a James O'Barr painted cover. And I got, I later got, I think it's issue three that has the the IO cover, but I don't think I got it in that same trip, but uh, I, I definitely got it from the same store. So I got those and was like, wow, here's some more James O'Barr comics that I didn't know existed at all so i knew at that point there was frame 137 io and gideon's and uh so i made this website and put uh you know i scanned some some panels from from frame 137 and gideon's and tried to do more of a, a fan site that was focused on the comics and about obar's work and uh, you know just went about that i think that's when i really started obsessively trying to find out stuff uh about him and his work so i could put it on that that website um and uh, yeah, I guess um, because looking at the archive uh, of that, your name comes up in my James O'Barr bibliography and um, your website Shattered in the Head had what at the time I think was like the most complete bibliography of his work. Um, so yeah, I mean, so that's the story behind my site. What was, how did Shattered in the Head come together? Well, that, that was really the impetus for it is just having that bibliography up. I didn't know if I was going to do more than that, but I wanted there to be some place that, you know, you could see that there was more than just the crow to be found. And so I, you know, we're, we're talking, you know, early internet pre eBay, I'm, you know, trying to, to go to shops and dig through bins. Uh, fortunately, I have two good comic shops at the time by me. One of them still around. Um, you know, and one of them had a had like a drawer of kind of indie stuff that that uh, I went and dug through, and um, I was able to get a lot of that um, that early stuff. I was able to get um, a lot of the Dead World books out of there, um, of which he did a bunch of covers, really cool covers for. I really like those covers, um, and um, the Choke uh, number two. He did a cover for that, and it had a reprint. Um, but uh, I just wanted that bibliography up there. And then beyond that, I kind of decided that I'd flesh it out and kind of do a little blurb about each each of the stories. Um, and the idea was is that I was just not going to bother doing The Crow because there were enough other websites that did The Crow. That was going to be the last thing that I did a write-up for. And in fact, I never got around to it. I never really finished that website. It was a, it was a GeoCities website, and uh, it's still out there. Because uh, when GeoCity shut down, uh, all that was ported over. I don't know if somebody just decided they didn't want that stuff to be lost um, or what, but all those GeoCity sites are still out there, just um, under a slightly different web address. Uh, so you can still find that website out there. I I'd, I'd thought about going back and maybe completing it, 
um, over the years. And then the further and further I got away from that, um, I thought, well, you know, this is pretty obscure. Nobody's going to see this anyway. And so I actually copied the bibliography. Um, I expanded it to the the current day, whenever, whatever year that was. And I, um, I put it on James O'Barr's Wikipedia page so that people could find that stuff. And then, uh, sometime around 2012, I did the last update to it where I turned it into like a sortable table. And so if you go to his Wikipedia page, um, that bibliography there is something that I added just because I wanted people to be able to find that stuff and be able to go beyond the crow. And uh, now, you know, that's 10 years ago. I don't know what happened to 10 years, but uh, I should probably go back and update the table and add all the new stuff that he's done. It's mostly covers uh, since then. It's mostly covers that he's done for people and um, some work outside the comic industry, like album covers and things like yeah. that. Unfortunately, even counting covers and and uh, and things like that's still not that many things. I mean, what do you think? You think there's like six to ten things maybe that aren't on that list already that that have come out? And it's not. Um. Well, I mean, if you count the yeah, if you don't count the IDW stuff, so. He did a lot of variant covers for the uh, IDW okay, Crow yeah. series that started in 2012. And so there's a lot of, I was happy to get a lot of his artwork that way um, since he hadn't published that much since then. But uh, it's a very, it's a very slow trickle of, uh, of his stuff that has come out. And, um, you know, he's had a lot of starts on things after the Crow that he didn't, didn't complete. Um, you know, there was a, there was a book from 12 gauge comics called the ride that was all kind of focused on, uh, cars. Uh, so different stories, um, would have different cars in them. And, uh, he was going to do one of those and they put out a, a sketchbook, um, in 2006 or seven, um, where he, you know, talks about his history of being an auto mechanic and some of the cars he owned and shows some of the preliminary artwork. Um, and it looks like it's kind of like a, almost a continuation of the slave cylinder stuff from Bonesaw. Um, but uh, that never, never came to fruition. Um, another book called Sundown that uh, I had seen art at conventions in the early 2000s. Um, back then it was called Sundown in Hell. And uh, he, would, he would show art from that. And artists popped up from time to time. And then eventually that got made into a motion comic, uh, which was pretty cool. Too bad nobody can see it because it doesn't really exist anymore. I wish I would have been able to capture it somehow when I had it on my my iPad, but I didn't. So all we have is the the little preview that's available on the. I think it's still on YouTube. I don't know if the MotionWorks website exists anymore. Some of the art that I'd seen from that at conventions was really cool, and I've not seen any of that surface online. I'm sure some collector owns it, or maybe it's still in his uh, in his collection. This is the thing that frustrates me. I feel like there's a bunch of just unreleased artwork that. Uh, you know, is in his back room or whatever, um, which is okay. That's an artist's prerogative to not, not release stuff. But uh, as a fan, you know, I want to, I want to see it. And um, I'd love for there to be another sequential story, um, you know, another graphic novel that uh, gets completed. I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, I would even love just to see, you know, and I would rather have, you know, an issue of Sundown, even if it's not the full miniseries or the full graphic novel, I'd rather have an incomplete thing than a that exists than an than a complete thing that doesn't exist. If that makes sense, like yeah, it's been a long time. Um, you know that apparently there was uh, a gothic, and then he just decided not to finish that after 
you know, there's some, some amount of artwork, uh, that's out there. And, you know, some of it was published in the form of frame 137 and snake dance, but, uh, or shadow dance. Uh, but anyway, snake dance. Yeah. Snake dance. And, yeah. uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's frustrating. I, you know, I, I can understand why he wouldn't want to, you know, his, his reasoning for not finishing is he just felt like he was always behind the curve on the, the technology and, um, but, but still it would be great to see, you know, what was actually completed if there was, if there was more than, uh, what was published and, um, or, you know, just if the sundown motion app thing could just come out as a single issue, or I don't know how many pages there were in that. I unfortunately didn't find out about it until it had already been taken down. Um, uh, but I would, would love to have that. And that's along with the, the ride sketchbook, those are. Kind of my white whales of the known James O'Barr stuff that's that's out there that I haven't been able to lay hands on yet. Um, and then as far as other uncompleted stuff uh, we've talked about uh, is the Bride Crow or I think Engines of Despair, and it seems like that. It, it all, yeah. You you mentioned Slave Cylinder in re, in regards to the the ride, and in, yeah, in the, the introduction to that he mentions that that it's the same. It's supposed to be the same character, Henry. But it seems like it's a different time period. It's because Slave Cylinder is in the far future, and it seemed like the ride was supposed to be contemporaneous, or maybe even in the past. Uh, but the, the same sure. character, yeah, but um, a different setting. Um, but the story looked like it was trying to cover some of the same ground as uh, Engines of Despair, with the you know the Bride and Revenge, and uh, I assume if it's the from the name Engines of Despair that there's you know a car component to that, but. I could be wrong. Uh, in, in the, none of the, the artwork I've seen from that has has any cars or anything in it. But uh, I think she's boarding a train on one of the one of the paintings that I've seen, which is kind of interesting. So I don't know how oh, much okay. that plays into the story, or if that's just a play on the the words in the title. But it, that stuff it's crazy because I've I've seen pieces you know here and there online. I've seen a few pieces in his his books that he had at conventions with him. And uh, I just want to see that stuff. You know, I want to see that stuff published. You know, I think there was enough material in that Sundown Motion comic to be a single issue, a 22-page comic or, you know, or whatever. And he's, he's alluded to there being other Gothic artwork that didn't get published. You know, at this point, I don't have any hope that that story will ever be finished. But that was, that was the first, you know, subject I focused on on, on my blog was I, I wanted to talk about Gothic and, and how that... Um, that story really resonated the, at least the pieces that I got of it. And that's really what I want to see more of. And, you know, he talked about technology being outdated and things like that, but I, I think that's always the case with, with books and movies. I mean, we all still love Blade Runner, right? Even though, you know, that future has come and gone and that's not, not the future that the world ended up having. Um, it, it's still, uh, it's still a cool world and a cool setting. And, uh, I just kind of wanted to see more. Yeah. I mean, if he did it now, he could do it as like a retro futuristic thing where, uh, you know, it's just kind of deliberately not uh, accurate in terms of like, you know, future predictions. Um, the, uh, uh, have you read, I mean, I'm sure you have uh, Golgothica by uh, John Burgeon, which is set in the same universe. Uh, so I, yeah. I feel, yeah, I'm glad at least with, with uh, Golgothica and Wednesday that, you know, we got to spend some time in that world and see some of the details of that world, uh, even if it 
know, I would, I would still very much like to see um, what Obar was going to do with his, his portion of that. But um, yeah. And, and Burgeon has been working on finally finishing the last issue of Golgothica, which, you know, it was, it was, it started to run in the nineties and was canceled, never finished. Um, so I don't know. Uh, so many of these things that are just <laughs> out there, like almost done tantalizingly close to, to being finished and never quite, uh, never quite materializing. It's, uh, um, and I mentioned, you know, known stuff, I guess another thing, like my other white whale is to discover, something that you haven't found yet and added to the bibliography, uh, something that nobody knows about. Um, it feels like there's, I'm I, sure it's I, there. it seems like there's gotta be something, you know, um, just with, you know, the black and white boom of the eighties and so much material was coming out from so many publishers and, um, you know, James Ovar's his tendency to use different pseudonyms. So there could be something out there under a pseudonym that, you know, we, don't recognize and we'd only be able to identify it by, you know, by the style or something. It, you know, who knows? Um, I also think people had tendency to like commission something from him and then like reuse it and reuse it. Like you saw this with Everett Hartsoe, uh, the guy that created Razor, right? Like he got that one black and white sketch from Obar and he used it on like two different back covers. And then he used it as a cover, you know, he colored it and used it as a cover for the book dead boys. And then there were like three different editions of that that I'll use that cover. And, you know, he did like, he does, seems to do a lot of favors for people. Like somebody will say, Oh, can you just do this back cover or do this cover for me? And then, you know, it's just this really obscure stuff that's out there. Like, I feel like I've gotten lucky. Like some of the stuff that I found, there's this um, comic from 2001 that I just so randomly discovered while going through a box, like a dollar bin box at a convention I don't even know what possessed me to pull it out and flip it over, but he just did the back cover. Like there's just a, you know, a sketch on it of this weird little sock puppet with a straight razor. And I'm like, Oh my God, this is like a James of art piece. And I've never seen another copy of this comic book anywhere ever. Like I can't find it on eBay. I can't find it online, but I've got my copy. So whatever, it's fine. But I feel like there's other stuff like yeah. that out there. I'm sure. Like there's probably something. Yeah. yeah. And, and my hope is, is, is yeah to find some some pre-crow stuff like in the you know, there's this whole period of after he was in the marines until the crow was published where you know there's only one thing that is really known and that's um unless you count dead world um but uh is that uh g-forces from uh from strange tales for marvel um and it's it's possible that he was just really focused on you know trying to get stuff out from marvel i know there's some some x-men stuff the pages that are floating around that he um he said was supposed to be for marvel fanfare that i think was not completed or not definitely not published and um he he was trying to do some stuff for savage sword of conan and that didn't work out so I, i guess maybe it's possible that he was just really focused on sending stuff to the marvel magazine lines in the 80s and most of that just never saw the light of day, but he's mentioned a few times having done stuff for like fanzines. So I feel like uh, in that, you know, either in the the seventies, you know, when he was first starting out uh, before the Marines and uh, as well as in the eighties. So I feel like there's, there's gotta be some, some undiscovered uh, Obar pieces in like Xeroxed fanzines that had a circulation of like a hundred copies or something that, Probably I would have to be in the Detroit area to ever find, but um, I don't know. There's 
don't know, uh, hope springs eternal, I guess. Um, do you have a favorite uh, thing uh, besides the crow that, that Obar has done? I, I think it's snake dance just because that's a world that I want to see more of. Like, I wish there was more of that book. And one of the cool things about that book is that um, Golgothica, the John Bergen, the backup story, um, you know, that had four issues published at Caliber, just like The Crow, coincidentally, and then was was canceled, even though there was a fifth issue in, in the works. And uh, on Bergen's old website, he talks about um, that fifth issue. And uh, that fifth issue was going to cross over with the same time period and the same part of the story that snake dance crossed over with. So you were going to get to see those same events happen, but from the other artist's point of view, um, which I think is really cool. And um, the, the unpublished cover for that issue has, has that character, you know, has Blixa and has Wednesday. Those two characters are on that cover. And um, I was super stoked when I saw on, uh, on Instagram that uh, not only was he going to polish up that unpublished fifth issue, but also uh, do a sixth issue. Uh, John Bergen's Instagram has a bunch of cool stuff on it um, in regards to being an Ovar fan. It's got some uh, some stuff from a Neuromancer project that they worked on and never did uh, that then kind of led them to doing Gothic. It's got some of the early Gothic stuff before it was even called Gothic. It was called Black Chrome. And um, I don't know, it's really cool. All of that stuff really interests me. Uh, that particular storyline really captured me. And that's that's kind of what I wrote the first uh, post on my blog about um, was about that, that world and all the different, you know, indie comics that we've seen it in. And um, I hope that maybe we'll see it in a few more. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, and to answer my own question, obviously frame 137 is my favorite. So I guess we're both, both uh, big on the unpublished Gothic stuff or unfinished Gothic stuff. Um, but uh, um with the, the James O'Barr creator site. So you had, you know, you did shattered in the head like a million years ago. Uh, what made you decide to, to uh, put out a new O'Barr website? Um, you know, I'd always wanted to finish that old one. And um, I kind of just decided that rather than, than going back to that ancient format, that ancient GeoCities format that uh, maybe I could do something a little more contemporary. And also uh, selfishly, I kind of just wanted to like, get all my stuff photographed that I have. Um, and if I was less lazy, there would be more posts. Maybe I'll do a couple more this year. Uh, talking to you has certainly made me want to, want to make some more posts, but I just kind of want to have, um, a snapshot out there of, uh, all the stuff that I've encountered so that other collectors can try to hunt it down or at least, you know, be aware of it, um, and see it. Uh, yeah, I, I don't, my first, my first post was all about Gothic and I was kind of going to do the same thing I did with Shattered in the Head where I kind of just did the crow last because there's enough crow stuff out there. Enough people know about it. But then I decided to kind of work my way through chronologically and doing the caliber years, you have to talk about crow, you know. So I um, went through the Dead World stuff and the crow stuff. And uh, it, it still just blows me away that really it's uh, 1989 is just the big year, you know. Dead World 10 comes out at the end of 88. And then uh, most of his stuff comes out in 89, a few covers in 1990, but, but really 1989 is the year, you know, and then you don't see anything for a couple years and then uh, Tundra picks up. So I'll, I'll have to do an article picking up uh, with Tundra and going forward. Yeah, cool. Because there's also the North Star stuff that came out around that same time. 
Uh, we haven't talked about that at all. Uh, not that there's much to, again, like there's not a whole lot there. So there's not a, a lot of material to discuss, but that's another you know, unfinished project is uh, Zeitgeist was the name of that, the, the thing he was doing there. And uh, like he was still talking about it as late as like 2000. So uh, there might be unpublished Zeitgeist stuff even that's that's out there that or you know, is in some, you know, collector's collection or in, in his basement or something somewhere. Uh, but uh, yeah, just so many, so many things that hopefully we'll someday see the light of day, but might not. Well, nor it's funny. I was mentioning how like our Everett Hart, so, you know, took one pinup and he, he kind of used it in five different places. And I feel like um, North star did that with uh, the zeitgeist stuff. Like, you know, there's two or three different books that have like a two page preview, you know, of this story. And then they got, they got three covers out of it. The first three issues of, um, oh geez, what is it called? Is it called splatter? Uh, no, slash. It's called, um, slash. I think. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Slash. The first three issues of slash have, uh, zeitgeist covers, but there's only eight pages of sequential story. Yeah. You know, you get three covers, but you only get eight pages of story and it's, it's billed as part one. But we never uh, we never see a part two or uh, anything else to go along with it. No, not <laughs> nothing else. And yeah, it's it's a funny thing. He hasn't meant it's not one that he has talked about a lot, but said like he was it was still coming up years later, uh, you know, many years after that one single chapter was published. Uh, so yeah, that one's you know not really one of my favorites by him, but uh, nonetheless, you know, if if there's more pages, I would would still love to see those so yeah i think we've we've covered a lot of his career i guess uh, there's still just like the those scant things of the uh over the last few years i think the the big thing would be uh skinning wolves which he did the breakdowns for i'm uh, just suddenly forgetting his name terry uh jim terry G- yeah. jim terry um yeah. and that's yeah that's like really his last big comics thing that's been published other than covers is uh or the uh curare and uh and skinning wolves was it seemed like he was a little bit more actively involved in the art side of of skinning wolves though we got a, we got a lot of get good covers on the other one mm-hmm. on curare too like i i like that um you know when idw picked up the license they they got john shirley one of the screenwriters from the crow to do a series and i i didn't love the book itself but Hey man, I got five Obar covers out of it, um, you know, with those retailer incentives because IDW loves to do those variant covers, um, and also the main covers for that series were done by Kyle Hotz, and like he's done some cool crow artwork um, over the years that I've I've seen online. Like he did the uh, and also published, um, like when IDW repackaged all the uh, kitchen sink press books, um, Kyle Hotz did the covers for those too. And they're great. You know, his work's really interesting. He's a good artist. And um, yeah, he's one of the more like yeah. enduringly successful of the kind of outlaw comics people. Because he started out at like Anubis uh, Press with with the choke and stuff like that. So uh, I, I, I think of him as part of that that era of comics. And uh, yeah, and now he's mostly doing mainstream comics, but he's still uh, like still at it, which you know, is a little bit rare. Yeah, there's a there's actually a, a unfin as far as I know an unfinished strip that he did in the choke. I believe it was called October. That's very very crow esque, um, but certainly James Obar's influence is there, and he doesn't you know he he talks about that. He doesn't hide that at all that uh, that he's an Obar fan. Um, 
but he's done some some really cool work over the years. There's a there's a book called Mosaic that I would tell people to check out uh, if they're checking out Kyle Hot stuff. Cool. Yeah, uh, I'll have to do that. Um, yeah. So I guess you know, one of the other things I wanted to do on this, I guess we're touching on that subject, is uh, is talk about like other media, whether that's comics or films or books or or whatever that they we would recommend to Obar fans. And so it sounds like Mosaic is one. Um, is there anything else that comes to mind for you? Um, well, you know, I love comics, but I feel like everything I love is rooted in, you know, 30 years ago, which is, uh, I'm, I'm not reading a lot of contemporary stuff. I'd actually like to get, get more involved. Um, I, a few years ago, uh, you know, discovered the, uh, cartoons kayfabe channel, which, you know, lots of people have, and you've talked about that, um, before. And, uh, so I've, uh, I've picked up Red Room, you know, in support of, of Ed Pisker and also picked up, uh, his X-Men Grand Design, which is great. Um, that's something that so anybody that's an X-Men fan should check that out. And that's kind of a cool synthesis of the underground comic style, but, uh, a big, you know, corporate property. Um, but as, as far as current books coming out, there's really nothing on the horizon, um, that I see. Uh, I'd love to get more involved. I'd love to start going to the comic shop again, uh, see what's out there as far as independent titles. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of interesting, uh, work though. Like in terms of being particularly similar to James O'Barr, like, yeah, just there's not a whole, whole hell of a lot that I would uh, mention, but um, like one of them would uh, Gideon Falls, which uh, he did a cover for. Uh, so I picked it up just because of that. And uh, it's, I'd say it's more of a vertigo style book, but it, um, it touches on, you know, just some of the same uh, tropes, I guess, of, you know, religious elements and urban like strange urban settings and, and things like that, that I think um, uh, would appeal. Um, I mentioned to you the other day, uh, Bloodhorn, which was serialized in a comic called Reptile House. And it's, it's really cartoony, more influenced, you know, by underground or alternative comic stuff. And uh, not a, not a serious like revenge story or anything, but it, the, it kind of has a, what, what reminds me of, of, of Obar in it is like the, I guess just the music elements of it and just the, it's just really tied into uh, like the Philadelphia punk scene and just like these really dense urban, uh, you know, uh, settings of just things under bridges and uh, underground rock clubs and uh, stuff like that, that, that has, uh, I don't know, there's, there's something about it just a little bit that, um, that makes me think about stuff like, you know, frame 137, even though it's tonally completely different, but just it has kind of that same just cool vibe of like, you know, here's some, here's some cool countercultural people doing cool countercultural stuff uh, along those lines. Um, then outside of comics, uh, the movie Mandy, is, uh, you know, obviously it's a revenge story. So there's, <laughs> there's that, that linkage, but uh, there's something about like the, the surreal storytelling that gives it sort of a comics feel. And uh, yeah, it just reminds me of some of uh, more of like the covers because it's color, uh, more of like the Obar covers than, than, um, than something else like, uh, uh, like his in interior pages. But yeah, I feel like it's something that Obar fans would enjoy. I'll have to check that out. I, I watch, is, that's a Nicholas Cage yeah, film, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I watched through a lot of his early filmography last year, um, but uh, I need to catch up on some of the newer stuff. And uh, I don't know why, but when I saw the trailer for that movie, it almost had like an Evil Dead vibe to me. Um, and so uh, it certainly was something that, that seemed interesting. Yeah, it's uh, the director, uh, Panos Cosmatos, also did uh, Beyond the Black Triangle, I think is the name of it, um, which is not very similar in terms of uh, the content of it, but the the style of it, a lot of experimenting with light and color and um and stuff like that in in fun ways that uh it's kind of a, i don't know it, it yeah mandy's weird because it's sort of like an art film that's also just like kind of a revenge slasher movie like so it's like this weird mix of highbrow and lowbrow content that uh, uh i guess that's also kind of fits with the the obar um uh you know modus operandi of his his work has a, you know, like you said, like he's he's like a fine artist now. He's more doing like paintings and stuff. And I feel like the the real value of his his work is in that, um, like the emotions that he's able to to capture. But he does all that in like the the context of these stories about you know violence and murder and uh, you know without uh, without a ton of um, uh, like really you know plot tw- you know not a lot of plot twists or like you know, character development or anything like that. Uh, yeah. For media recommendations, I, I just finished yellow jackets last night. And uh, I would say that that pulls in a lot of elements of, of um, horror and surrealism and things that uh, things that I find interesting about underground comics that, that are also there kind of the grotesqueness um, of some of them. And uh, that's, that's definitely uh, something I would recommend that people. Yeah. Me too. Out. That, yeah, that show was, was great or is great. And uh yeah, just like the the whole '90s flashback stuff. It's a lot of fun for for people our age, and hopefully for people of other ages as well. Um, cool. Uh, well, I think we should probably wrap up soon. Um, is there anything else you wanted to to cover or talk about in there? Oh, geez, I don't know. There's I could just talk about this stuff for hours, but uh, I think we hit hit most of the bases. Um, you know, if somebody is interested in Obar's work and they don't want to buy a zillion back issues, um, I kind of narrowed it down. There's a six, six non-crow books that, that you can buy and you can get a, a large chunk of his, his pages, um, along with a few cool covers. So you'd want to pick up Caliber Presents number two, which has, uh, the Gideon's strip, uh, Monster Massacre special number one, which has Snake Dance. Uh, North Star Presents James O'Barr number one, which has all the Zeitgeist stuff, Zeitgeist. Uh, Pink Dust number one, which has the Slave Cylinder stuff and uh, some other stuff that he did around that time. Tasty Bits number one, which has some early work from him, uh, some pre-Crow, pre-Marvel uh, work from when he was like 14 years old. And then uh, the remastered version of IO that John Bergen put out in 2011. Um, it is colored and I, I definitely, um, I like the black and white version as well, but I'm not going to tell anybody to go buy a caliber presents number one. Uh, that's an expensive book these days. Um, that stuff was reprinted in black and white in, um, original sins, the same company that put out tasty bits, put that out. But I think the, uh, the art is better reproduced in the, in the Bergen edition. And it's also nice to support something that's in print and, you know, that, you know, where, uh, Bergen and Obar are going to get uh, uh, presumably some 
percentage of what gets uh, uh, of that purchase. Whereas you know, buying a uh, an original sins out of a uh, a long box somewhere, that's good because it supports your local retailer, I guess. But um, yeah, there's not it's not going to put uh, new money into uh, into the artist's uh, pockets. So I yeah I would agree uh, that. Yeah, getting the the new IO book would be the way to go on that. That's the only thing I would add to that list uh, would be the uh, Andrew Vax Hard Looks trade paperback because there's two sequential oh, yeah, Obar things in there, and he didn't write them, but um, I think they they both. Uh, I I would actually recommend that over the North Star book uh, personally because I I think those two strips in there are better than the things from. Uh, uh, from the North Star book, and then you get also like all the other uh, Andrew Vax adaptations that are in there, and uh, oh, that would be that would be my my version of that. There's a couple different versions of that Hard Looks trade paperback, um, and definitely I would say to be on the lookout for the one that has both of the Obar stories in it. Uh, Anytime I want and Joyride are the two stories. There's earlier versions that only have one of them in it. Um, and then I think there's later versions that might not have them at all. Um, so you want to hit the sweet spot with, I think it was like the second edition or something. The reason I like the North Star book is just because if we're just trying to collect as many Obar pages as possible, it has both uh, Zeitgeist and it also has the 16 page um, Blood Rape of the Lust Ghouls. What a title, right? And that was written by uh, David Scow that wrote, uh, was one of the screenwriters on The Crow. Um, and that's kind of a... I don't know. I have a thing about doppelgangers. I, I like doppelgangers in, in my fiction, and that, that story is about a, a horror screenwriter whose evil doppelganger uh, gives him some problems. And um, that was originally printed in a, in a magazine format by North Star, uh, but it is included in that uh, later reprint book. Um, yeah, I don't know. I yeah. love all that stuff. Yeah, I wasn't wild about Blood Ghouls, which is why I... Uh, yeah, I I would prefer the the Andrew Vax ones, but yeah, you're right that, that in terms of page count, like you're better served with uh, with the North Star book because of that. But I uh, I think that the the Andrew Vax adaptations like played more to Obar's strengths than uh, the the Blood Ghoul one, which I think was oh, they're certainly in the same wheelhouse, right? Like they're both. Uh... Yeah, in fact, you know, I, I looked him up today. He uh, he died in December. I didn't realize that. Yeah, uh, Andrew yeah. Vax. Um. Yeah, but um, yeah, th- both of those stories are uh, are good, and I, and I like the cover too of uh, Hard Looks Number Three. Um, that's a good one to have in the collection. Good. Yeah, actually, it, yeah, Andrew Vax's books would be uh, another recommendation for other media uh, for Obar fans for sure to pick up his his Burke series and uh, some of the other books he's done. He also did a short story in um, in a crow collection. Uh, there was a crow collection in '98 called uh, "Shattered Lives and Broken Dreams," where there was uh, like 40 or so artists and writers got together and uh, did contributions for it. And in the original edition, there is a, an original Andrew Vax story. It actually doesn't appear in the the paperback version or the later hardcover. There was some kind of dispute over the artwork used with it or something. But um, it's uh, it's interesting to see see those to the cross section there i certainly think that he is uh somebody that obar fans yeah do. Oh, frame 137 was dedicated to him so that's uh another yeah besides yeah. the fact that obar did adapt some of his stories there yeah he was uh definitely a big fan of that uh of that work great well i uh i should probably let you go 
coming up on an hour now. So thanks a bunch for, for taking the time and uh, always fun to, to talk about James O'Barr. Oh, it's it an absolute pleasure. I'll just, uh, I'll shout out to my childhood friend, Kelsey, that introduced me to the crow. And I'll tell you that uh, we went to a comic book convention together and he bought this big crow poster at the very first stand of this giant convention. And we had to lug that thing around all day long with us. It was, you know, matted on a piece of cardboard wrapped in plastic. And so uh, for making me haul that around all day that day and making me a crow fan. Thank you. <laughs>